Take your Bibles with me, if you would, and go to 1 Peter chapter 4. We continue our study in the book of 1 Peter, and we come to the point of 1 Peter where it is no longer to be confused with 2 Peter. And we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Follow along as I read God's word to us this morning. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Would you join me in a word of prayer before we dig deeper and study this text of Scripture before us this morning? Father, this is your word, and as we study it, We want to glorify you through Jesus Christ this morning. All the glory and dominion belongs to you. And so as we examine and study this text, would you help our response to you to be one of worship, to be one of submission? This is your word. May we sit under it and submit ourselves to it this morning. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Have you ever asked the question, was it worth it? Maybe as a parent, you catch your child doing something mischievous and and you reveal to them that you know and you say, was it worth it? This question is usually asked after a risk is taken in a critical situation. There have been times throughout world history and significant battles where we could look back and we could say, was that risk worth it? This also happens in significant sporting events. Maybe, maybe a long fourth, you know, fourth and long situation and the team decides to go for it. Was it worth it? One famous example of this occurred in the 1997 NBA Finals. Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls were taking on the Utah Jazz. And the series had reached a pivotal Game 5. The series was tied 2-2, and the the winner of Game 5 would more than likely become the next champion. But Michael Jordan headed into Game 5 struggling with flu-like symptoms. In our modern day, he would have been placed in health and safety protocols and not even allowed to play the game. But he still played the game. Most of the game, he lethargically moved around the court looking very out of it. You could tell by watching the game that something was not right with Michael Jordan. The the greatest basketball player ever did not seem like the greatest basketball player ever. But still, he finished with 38 points. And many sports writers view him as basically all but willing his team to victory that evening. The Chicago Bulls ended up beating the Utah Jazz not only in Game 5, but capturing the 1997 NBA Finals championship. 
Jordan's flu game, as it is called today, added to this legacy that he had already established and made him even more legendary of a basketball player. So, was it worth it for Jordan to play in the game? Was it worth it for him to play even though he was sick? Well, given the stage and the glory of victory, the cost of playing sick outweighed sitting out. And I'd be willing to bet Jordan and his teammates looked back on that game and thought it was worth it. Why? Well, because the end made the process worth it. I'm sure in the middle of the second quarter, it was not worth it to Jordan to be playing in this game five feeling as he felt. As we come to our text this morning, the same dilemma is facing Peter, his audience. It's facing you and I. This question... Is it worth it to suffer unjustly for Jesus Christ? Is it worth it to suffer unjustly for Jesus Christ? Because Philippians 1.29 tells us that it has been granted to us that for the sake of Christ, that we should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Is it worth it? Is Jesus worth losing friends over? Is Jesus worth being socially marginalized? Is Jesus worth turning your back on what you've done your entire life? Peter's encouragement to the believers in our text is that Jesus is worth suffering unjustly for. As they prepare to face persecution and suffering, it is worth it for them to persevere and endure through that persecution. So this morning, as we consider 1 Peter 4, 1 to 11, we see this central idea over this text, and it is this, that the imminence of Christ's return necessitates that God's people live for the will of God. The imminence of Christ's return necessitates that God's people live for the will of God. And there are two points that we see in this text, two ways that the text breaks down. We see in verses 1 through 6 that we are to be armed with the mind of Christ. Armed with the mind of Christ. Peter begins chapter 4 by continuing his train of thought from chapter 3. And we see that in the first word of chapter 4, therefore. The therefore reaches back into chapter 3 for the theme of Christ's suffering. And we see this in chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. The suffering of Christ, though, isn't just intended to shock us or to awe us or to wow us. The suffering of Christ is to motivate us to action. So we read, therefore, since, in light of the fact that Christ suffered for us in the flesh, and not just suffered for us in the flesh, but suffered for us in the flesh leading up to and culminating in his death, We are given a command at the beginning of chapter 4. The command is to arm yourselves. This word literally means to arm oneself for battle. I don't know about you, but themes of Ephesians 6 pop into my mind. The word to put on the whole armor of God. What are we to, how are we to arm ourselves? What, What is the attitude behind that? Well, I also, in addition to to thinking of Ephesians 6, thought back to a day in our nation's history in 1775 where Paul Revere rode through the countryside and as Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote, Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere. On the 18th of April in 75, hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year. He said to his friend, if the British march by land or sea from the town tonight, hang a lantern aloft in the belfry arch of the North Church Tower as a signal light, one if by land and two if by sea. 
And I, on the opposite shore, will be ready to ride and spread the alarm through every Middlesex village and farm for the country folk to be up and to arm. As he rode through the countryside, he was not telling people to go to bed peacefully. He was, he was trying to get people to arm up and fight. Be prepared for something. Don't finish your dinner. Drop what you're doing. Grab your musket because there is a sense of urgency to what I am calling you to do. And that is similar to the weight that we see of Peter's command here in chapter 4, verse 1. That we are to arm ourselves. Arm ourselves with what? Arm yourselves also with the same mind. Same mind as what? Who or what are we supposed to have a similar mindset to? Well, in the immediate context, again, Peter's referring back to chapter 3, verse 18, that Christ had a mindset as he suffered in the flesh for us, the just for the unjust, as he brought us to God. But the idea of of this way that we are to think goes all the way back to chapter 2. In chapter 2, verses 21 through 24, we are told that because Christ suffered for us, that he suffered for us as an example that we should follow in his footsteps. In 1 Peter 4.19, Peter just comes right out and says this mindset that we are to have. Look with me, if you would, at 1 Peter 4.19. He says, therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. What was the mindset of Christ as he suffered for us? Well, he entrusted his soul to him who was able to judge righteously, 1 Peter 2 tells us. So what is the mindset that we as believers are to have? We are to have that same mindset that as we follow Christ, that we're to entrust our souls to him. In other words, we are to count it worth it to follow Christ. Jesus counted it worth it to suffer and to pay for the sins of humanity. He was willing to go to the cross. He was willing to die For our sins. And we ought to count it as worth it. 1 Peter 2.24 tells us that he did this so that we might live for righteousness. And Peter picks up on that theme when he says in verse 2, For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. So in light of Peter's context, who is the one who has suffered and ceased from sin? We see that at the end of verse 1. He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Well, our natural answer is Jesus. He has suffered in the flesh and ceased from sin. But how can someone who doesn't sin cease from sin? ought to cause some discomfort at assigning Jesus as the one who has suffered in the flesh and has ceased from sin. We could understand this as Jesus ceasing from sin in the sense that he's achieved victory over sin like we see at the end of chapter 3. But there appears to be a better option for how we could understand the one who has suffered in the flesh ceasing from sin. The one who has suffered and ceased from sin is the believer who is following Christ. This presents another problem, though, because I don't know about you, but we have not ceased from sinning. We're still pretty good at it. So how are we to understand this idea of the one who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin? Do we have to be sinless in order to be a child of God? Is that what Peter is talking about here? And the answer is no. It's not what Peter has in mind here. Instead, Peter is referencing the fact that those who follow Christ in unjust suffering will make the choice to obey God rather than their sinful lifestyle. In other words, sin will cease having authority over them. 
So if we want to go back and we want to see the end of 322, yes, as a reference to Christ having ceased from sin in the sense that he is no longer bound by the sinful effects of this world, that he's been resurrected, he's been vindicated, and he's up in in heaven. Brothers and sisters, that's comforting for us because we follow in that path. As ones who now, because Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, as we suffer, we have the opportunity to affirm in our life that Christ is better than our sin. And to cease from sin's power and authority over us. This interpretation makes sense if we consider the verses that follow. In verse 2, we have a call for the believer to live the rest of his time in the flesh like Christ, but to do it for the will of God, not for the passions of man. Well, this reinforces Peter's call back in chapter 2, verse 11, when he calls believers to abstain from worldly passions that war against the soul. So the one, the believer who embraces the example of Christ and follows an unjust suffering will follow the will of God, not the will of man. Okay, so how do we live the rest of our time in the flesh, not for the lusts of men, but for the will of God? We see this in verses 3 through 4. Verses 3 through 4 detail that for us. Peter writes that we have spent enough time in our past lifetime doing the desires of the Gentiles. There's a little bit of irony in that. Not only have we spent enough, if we're honest, we've spent more than enough time. So what does he do then? He goes on to list what the believers in these churches engaged in prior to their conversion. Each of these things in the list has as its common denominator the lack of self-control. These six things that Peter is about to delineate all involve a lack of self-control, a, a lack of, of godliness, lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. Lewdness and lusts, these first two items in Peter's list, deal with sexual perversion that is not in accordance with God's will. These are examples 1 and 1a of of ways that we should no longer live the rest of our time in the flesh for the lusts of men. And Peter says, before you came to Christ, those were things that used to characterize you. Lusts are passions. It's the same word that we see in verse 2, that we would live in our time in the flesh for the lusts of men. In Peter's list here, it speaks more specifically to sexual desire or lust or passion. The third item is drunkenness. This refers to what would have been normal at festivals to false gods in, in these original audiences in their day. This involved consuming large amounts of alcohol regularly in the name of of these religious festivals to their false gods. Revelries. Drunken parties that led to disorderly conduct and orgies in the name of religious and cultural festivals. Drinking parties. These are parties that were perhaps social in nature, but they led to excessive alcohol consumption. So what we see in these first five terms, this combination of sexual sin and drinking and parties, this was something that apparently was common in the Greco-Roman world, and it still is to this day. It would be normal for an unbeliever to participate in these things. The last thing that Peter identifies is abominable idolatries. Or we might say detestable idolatries. This is speaking of those other religious systems in in the polytheistic culture that Peter is addressing. And he's identifying them not only as false, but they're offensively false. Well, this is one of the things that made Christianity so offensive to the Gentiles. They didn't mind tolerating Christianity and its God. But when Christians advanced the idea that the other gods were not gods at all, well, there's cause for persecution. Those are fighting words. 
One commentator writes this about, the, about this list that Peter gives us here. Acts of abandon, lust, drunkenness, and revelry, carousing, and idolatry may well have characterized family religious celebrations, official meetings of the trade guilds, and civic holidays. In such a culture, there would be plenty of opportunity to suffer abuse for the name of Christ by refusing to participate in the rituals of culture and thereby alienating oneself from friends, family, and business associates. That helps us understand the, the severity of what Peter is calling for here. These are not peripheral things that he's calling his, his churches to abstain from. These are key things that... like risk their livelihood, risk their social circles, risk family relationships. And Peter is telling them that it is worth it for them to jeopardize those things and to follow Christ and to suffer unjustly for it. It is through obeying Christ and following his commands that the follower of Christ is able to demonstrate that they have ceased from sin's influence in their life. We read in verse 4 how this goes over. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. The unbelievers think it's strange that the believers that Peter is writing to would be foolish enough to follow Christ. They are surprised that the believers don't partake in their river of lawlessness, in their excessive abuse of that which God prohibits. But it isn't enough for them to be surprised or think strange that they don't participate. They take it one step further at the end of verse 4. They speak evil of these believers. Why is that? Because our obedience to Christ is not something that unbelievers can tolerate. It speaks to them of the condemnation of their sin. So they seek to undercut those who seek to live for Christ instead of following these desires or will of the Gentiles that Peter mentions in verse 3. In verse 4, we are reminded in what sense Christians are sojourners and exiles. We are sojourners sojourners and exiles in that we do not share the values and aspirations of the surrounding society. Because we are in Christ and not in the world any longer because of what Christ has done for us, we perhaps find it odd to fit into the social fabric of our culture. Societal norms are no longer going to be normal for us because Christ has flipped on its head what our idea of societal norms is and he's replaced it with kingdom norms. Ways that we ought to live for Christ, for the will of God, not the will of the Gentiles. Verse 4 is also helpful for us to understand the nature of the persecution that Peter is addressing here. What we see in verse 4 is not evidence of state-sponsored persecution. This is not armed people coming around banging on doors in the name of the government and throwing people in jail. What we see instead is that unbelievers were at first puzzled and then outraged by the failure of believers to participate in activities that were a normal part of Greco-Roman culture. The persecution that Peter's addressing here is familial, it is social, it has to deal with your livelihood. Is it worth it to lose it all for Jesus Christ? We come to verse 5, and in verse 5, Peter lifts our attention from the imminent persecution and suffering to the future reality of these unbelievers. He says, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They are the same ones who are surprised and maligning you. And, and those people will give an account to him. Whether it's Jesus or whether it's God, the meaning is the same. They are going to be accountable to God. He is ready to judge the living and the dead. 
And how is that going to work? Well, they will give an account. This is courtroom language. They are going to stand, as it were, in a courtroom before the judge of the universe. And there is going to be a verdict given. Then we come to verse 6. And we should note that Peter here, he, he didn't mention the final judgment in verse 5 to encourage us to be vindictive towards unbelievers. And notice that he's not even addressing these words about the final judgment to unbelievers. He's reminding believers of the final judgment for all. He is assuring them that their perseverance in the faith matters and that those who practice evil will be assessed and condemned on the final day. He's reminding them of of a bigger reality than the suffering that they're facing. So verse 6 starts, For this reason. For what reason? Does the the reason speak back to verse 5 or is it embedded in verse 6? Before this reason speaks to the purpose clause that we see that and later in verse 6 is that they might be judged according to men in the flesh. So the gospel was preached also to those who are dead for this reason that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. That is how we can understand how verse 6 lays out. So we come to another oddity in Peter's writing here in verse 6. Because what in the world does Peter mean when he says the gospel was preached also to those who are dead? We don't typically have church services with A bunch of gravestones sitting in the pews. I don't know of any evangelist who goes around to cemeteries and preaches in cemeteries. How are we to understand that he, when he says the gospel was preached also to those who are dead? Peter's referring here to those, including Christians, who once were alive but have died. From an unbeliever's perspective now, think about how you would view these believers. They have staked their life on Jesus Christ because he's going to give them life. And what's happened? They've died. (laughs) How foolish of you that you swallowed that hook, line, and sinker. And you gave up all of the fun that you could have had so that you could live and you're, you're dead. <laughs> it was not worth it for you to follow Christ. Because you ended up dying in the long run. The dead are not spiritually dead, but those who have died. So this word is used in verse 5, the word dead, and refers to those who are no longer living physically. So, so here, Peter is not referring to those who are spiritually dead. In verse 5, he uses the same word. And when he means dead, he means dead, dead. He doesn't mean kind of dead or some sort of dead or some shade of dead. He means like no heart beating dead. And he means the same thing here in verse 6. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead. Why? For this reason. That they might be judged according to men in the flesh. And, And the men, as they're judging them in the flesh, it seems like a loss. It seems like, like a negative. Because you've trusted in Christ. He was supposed to give you life and they've judged you according to the flesh and they've been like, yeah, I don't think it was worth it. But how does verse 6 end? That they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. This is key for us to understand. This is, this is the mindset that we're to arm ourselves with. That it's worth it to suffer unjustly for Christ. Why? Because you might die physically and everybody's going to look at you and they're going to say, yeah, I don't think that whole Christianity thing worked out like you thought it was going to. 
but they don't see the whole perspective. They're missing verses 5 and 6. They're missing that there is a day of accountability coming. And brothers and sisters in Christ, if you have trusted in Christ for salvation, you have life according to God in the Spirit. In other words, you are ready for that day of judgment that is coming. So what is Peter's point in verses 1 to 6? As we are to be armed with the mind of Christ, what is his point? His point is this, because Christ suffered for you in order to bring you to God, it is worth risking your life to arm yourself with the mindset that following the will of God and neglecting the lifestyle that is contrary to God's priorities is best. Those, though Peter's audience once participated in what was normal in their culture, they've been saved by Christ and they have an obligation to adopt the mind of Christ. This is going to lead to surprised disappointment that will result in them being ostracized and undercut in their social circles and in their family setting. And believers shouldn't fear this. It shouldn't be something that is a deal breaker for them. Why? Because eternal judgment is coming. And even if they die in this life like Stephen did, They have eternal life according to God in the Spirit secured for them. Notice that that the life that the believer has is the same sort of life that Jesus has in chapter 3 verse 18. That he was put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit. We're with him. He has been fully triumphant and vindicated. And we can't lose with Jesus. So it is worth it. If Peter commands us then to arm ourselves with this mindset in verses 1 to 6. In verses 4 to 7 he instructs his audience to be watchful for the return of Christ and live in light of it. We are to be watchful for the return of Christ. So armed with the mind of Christ. Second, watchful for the return of Christ. We come to verses 7 through 11. Verse 7 starts with Peter reminding his audience of the imminent return. He starts in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Throughout the New Testament, the return of Christ is in view. Not so that we will guess the exact time Christ returns. But so that we will be busy as his people doing his will while our stay lasts on this earth. So in light of the fact that Christ's return is imminent, there are four implications in verses 7 through 11 that ought to shape how we act as we await the return of Christ. One of the things that we see in this passage is the the community nature of these commands. With almost every single one of these commands, they're either plural verbs or there is this one another phrase that is used in this section. So these are not commands that we are able to live out individually. They are commands that we are to live out in community. Notice the commands in verse 7. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. We could uh, translate this even self-controlled and sober-minded. The idea is this contrast with, with this drunkenness that Peter identified as something the Gentiles used to do. In contrast to the not drunkenness that believers are to have in their mind. They are to be sober-minded. As a matter of fact, Peter uses that same verb in chapter 5, verse 8, when he says, be sober, be vigilant, because your devil, your adversary, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. We could phrase the command in verse 7 like this. Keep your head. With the reality of the return of Christ, it can be easy for Christians to lose their heads. Not literally, but like you lose your mind. With the reality of persecution and suffering imminent, it can be easy for Christians to lose their heads. And here Peter commands his audience to keep their heads. To be serious, to be sober-minded, to be self-controlled in their prayers. 
why their prayers? Because Christians who lost their heads won't pray. If we don't have our right mind about us as believers, we're not going to pray. We're going to lose our focus on Christ. We're going to be swept up in the current of worry and anxiety and then doubt. So here Peter encourages us to look to Christ in this way. To be self-controlled and sober-minded in your prayers. As Christ approached the suffering of the cross, what did he do? He prayed in the garden. So we too as his followers must be dependent on God and express that to him in prayer. Think of the words of Jesus that would be running through Peter's mind when Peter said, or when Jesus said in Matthew 6, multiple times, when you pray, when you pray, when you pray, when you pray. And he gave us the example of how we ought to pray. Think of Paul's words in Colossians 4.2, to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So we are to be self-controlled and sober-minded. We're to keep our head in our prayers. Secondly, in verse 8, we find another way. Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. This is the second time in this letter now that Peter has encouraged his audience to show fervent love to one another. In 1 Peter 1.22, he tells them virtually the exact same thing. This is a theme that Jesus emphasized in his last days with the disciples. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Well, why is fervent love or constant love or diligent love so vital in the communities to whom Peter is writing? Because Jesus himself warned in Matthew 24 that in the last days, the love of some would grow cold. When we stop praying, when we stop focusing on Christ, one of the first things that happens is that we stop loving one another. And so Peter identifies above all things, have fervent love for one another. If if you don't take anything else away from this church, Make sure that you have fervent love for one another. The benefit is expressed in the second half of verse 8. For, or we could say because, love covers a multitude of sins. Love allows us to not remove the sins, but to forbear in the midst of sins and the faults of one another. We are a bunch of sinners. There's not a perfect one of us in the building this morning. We mess up. We fall short of expectations all the time. So how are we to get along? How are we to survive and encourage and help one another as we follow Christ and acknowledge the fact that he is better than anything else? It's through demonstrating the constant love of Christ to one another that we are able to overlook the faults and the shortcomings and still live together as the people of God. Verse 9 gives us another area that we are to keep our head in and be self-controlled and sober-minded in, and that is hospitality. Our modern individualistic society stunts our ability to fully grasp the idea that Peter has in mind here. Because back in the first century, if you traveled, you didn't go to Airbnb. You didn't go to TripAdvisor. You didn't go book a hotel online. People stayed with others. They stayed in other people's homes in the course of their travels. Community was a big thing in the first century, especially because many churches did not have dedicated buildings in which they could worship. Peter's call here is to show hospitality in a self-controlled and in a sober-minded way. And one of the ways that, that that carries itself out is that you show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Without grumbling about the people or about the cost. Let's be honest. There are times where where that is more difficult than others. Showing hospitality involves reaching and sacrificing and, and maybe putting yourself in an uncomfortable spot. 
Is it worth it? Yes. Verses 10 and 11. Peter concludes with one last way that believers are to be sober-minded and self-controlled. They are to be sober-minded and self-controlled in how they minister to one another. He says in verse 10, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Because we are the people of God that have received mercy, each of us has received a grace gift from God for the benefit of the church. And it's critical for us to grasp several things about these grace gifts that are given to each believer. Here are four things, or sorry, three things that Peter mentions and emphasizes for us about these gifts. First, the grace gift we are given is for the purpose of serving others. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. You are given a gift by God so that you can serve others with it, not so that you can build yourself up through it. So the purpose of the grace gifts is serving others. The second thing that Peter notes is that we are given it by God. We don't own the gift. Notice in verse 10 that we are to minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. God is is so kind and merciful in not equipping us all with the gift of, of the same thing. We all have various gifts that God has given us to use in his church to build up the spiritual building. And we are given them by God. We receive them. We don't work for them. We don't earn them. We don't cultivate them ourselves. God gives it to us. The last thing Peter mentions is that we are to steward the gift given us by God in the context of the church. So what's that look like? Well, there are two flavors, two categories of gifts that are delineated by Peter in verse 11. He says, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. All of the grace gifts, all of the flavors that God gives of grace gifts can be categorized under these two headings. Gifts pertaining to speaking and gifts pertaining to serving. So, if God gives you a gift pertaining to speaking, how are you to exercise that gift in the context of the church? Who does this include? This includes teaching and preaching. This includes those of you who volunteer and help out with Sunday school. This includes those of you who help lead Bible studies, who counsel others. Any activity involving speaking from God's word in the context of the church. How are you to do it? These gifts are to be practiced with soberness and faithfulness to the word of God. That's what Peter means when he says, let him speak as the oracles of God. The oracles of God is another word for that which is God's word. When we teach and preach, it's not enough for us to pull on what we think or what we believe. It is important for us to speak as if we are speaking the very words of God themselves. And then there are gifts pertaining to serving. This includes giving, leading, helping. Those who serve us by playing music instruments. Those who serve on cleaning teams. Those who volunteer in various areas around the church and help with construction needs. Those who serve in those ways must do so with the strength that God supplies. With the ability which God supplies. This implies sacrificial serving. There are times when you're going to serve and you, you don't feel like you have the strength. You can't do it. But you do it anyway because you are convinced that God gives the strength. He gives the ability that when you can't do it in your own strength, in your weakness, God's strength is made known. And he gets the glory. And that's how Peter wraps all of this up. 
that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Whether it be through exercising speaking gifts or gifts of serving, the goal of ministry is the glory of God. It's Jesus Christ who gives us the access to do things that glorify God. So it is through him that we are able to do that which glorifies God. Once we were his enemies and now we are able to engage in that which builds his church and encourages his people. What a change. Like Peter says in chapter 2, once you were not a people... But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So back to the question that we considered at the beginning. Is it worth it to follow Christ in obedience and risk suffering and persecution? Is it worth it to suffer unjust persecution for Jesus? While it may seem like we're losing in this world, Peter assures us, That because of Christ's victorious work on the cross, we gain eternal life with God. And that makes life in this world worth living for the will of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it is worth it to follow God's will and do what pleases him. Do you and I view serving God as better than doing what our culture or society desires? Do we arm ourselves with that mindset. Friend, are you ready for the judgment that is to come? On whose merit are you trusting to pass the judgment and attain life? Have you trusted in Christ for salvation to liberate you from your enslavement to sin? If you've never trusted in Christ for salvation, he has the record that you need and can't earn. He has sacrificed himself so that he could bring you to God. So come to Christ today and find security in having your sins forgiven and paid for. Brother and sister in Christ, where are we at with the commands that Peter gives us here? Are we diligent in reminding ourselves and each other of the mindset that we are to arm ourselves with? That it is better to suffer and do the will of God, trusting God to secure us, than it is to do what we want. Are we sober-minded and keeping a clear head as we live in this world? What does the latest news drive you to do? Does it cause you to call or text a friend? Does it cause you anxiety? Does it cause you to post or retweet or comment in anger and frustration? According to this text, Peter indicates that our first inclination should be to pray and trust God. Brother and sister, let's resolve by God's grace to be people who often are talking with God throughout our day. Like that easy memory verse in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. As we near the end of God's redemptive plan and the return of Christ draws near, let that reality, the reality of Christ's imminent return, compel us to pray for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Are we self-controlled and fervently showing love to one another? How can we as a church show diligent love to one another more and more? One place to start is doing what we have done this morning in regularly and persistently gathering together with the people of God. Who could you call and encourage this week? Who could you send an encouraging text or card to this week? Whose faults are you keenly aware of and need to love? Loving diligently takes humility and it takes God's strength. So pray and ask him for grace and strength to love those in this church that you perhaps find difficult to love. 
How can you show hospitality to others in this church? Do you view your house more as a castle to withdraw into, or do you view your house as a gift to be opened and shared with others? Do you realize how important you are to the church? We need the gift that God has given you, whether it's serving or speaking. So how willing are you to serve here at the chapel? Those who speak and serve with these gifts that Peter references here are part of the churches that he is writing to. These are not uh, isolated people that he's just writing to. These are groups of churches. So if you have a way that you would like to minister or serve in, talk to Pastor Harris or one of the elders. That is a way that you can help build up the people of God. Ultimately, the end of all that we do is to exalt and glorify God through what he has done in Christ Jesus. It is through Jesus Christ that we come to God and he is to be our boast. He is the one that we make much of. So in our serving, in our speaking, in how we relate to one another, how we love each other, how we show hospitality to one another, God gets the glory. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. So may God give us strength to live armed with Christ's mindset and keep a level head as we minister to one another and wait for Christ's return. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy and your kindness in giving us your word. Thank you for giving us your son who has brought us to you. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that you have given who empowers us and strengthen us, strengthens us to will and to do for your good pleasure. Would you work in us this morning so that these realities that Peter has communicated to us in your word would be realities that shape how we live in this world as sojourners and exiles? May you receive the glory in all things, for you alone are worthy to receive it. We pray this in your name. Amen.